1: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books and Middle Eastern Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Tural Mende, the host of the channel. Today we'll be talking to Elizabeth M. Perego about her new book, Humor and Power in Algeria, 1920 to 2021. Thank you for being on the podcast today.
0: Um, thank you so much, Degro, for having me and for um, to the New Books Network for hosting this. So I have the opportunity to share some information about um, this work, which I'm really excited about with your listeners.
1: Um, so first, can you tell us about, a bit about yourself and how did you start becoming an assistant professor?
0: Sure. Um, so first, I just want to acknowledge that I'm giving this interview from Appalachian State University, which is on the occupied land of the Cherokee and the Catawba nations. Um, But yeah, I I actually really started to initially become interested in um, history, I think, just kind of since I was a child, and particularly was very interested in counter-narratives. Um, so when I was younger, I grew up in um, very much a white suburban environment here in the US, where the history that we got in schools was very much whitewashed. Um, we did not really acknowledge, to a great extent, indigenous history of the United States um, or fully what was going on with slavery early in earlier centuries. And so it was someone who was really kind of always thinking about how do we challenge dominant narratives. I was very curious about that since I was even like 10 or 11. Um, And then I went to college and took coursework in a number of different fields, um, including I did French and Francophone studies, um, but also I did a number of different types of history courses and so African-American and Soviet history in particular, which got me very interested in questions of sort of hidden transcripts and ways that individuals and folks who are um, really alienated from power are able to try to share their narratives in different forms. Um, And so I just got curious about that. And then I I was reading and enjoying reading and writing in college and researching. Um, And, you know, when I found out initially when I went to college and I'm not first generation, um, but I initially kind of didn't realize I thought there were sort of researchers and then teachers at the college level. And when I realized that you could do both, I was really excited and just kind of got me on the path towards wanting to learn more um, and to try to produce Uh, material and contribute to conversations that would widen and broaden the number of narratives and the type of voices that we had um, at the table when studying history.
1: And uh, when did you start writing Humor and Power in Algeria? Why did you want to tell this particular story?
0: Yeah, so this actually um, goes back about 10 years. So this um, book does build off of my dissertation work, um, which I completed at the Ohio State University with Usman Kobo, Ahmed Sekenga, and Saber Weber. And initially, I was interested, I was drawn to Maghrebi history um, sort of by accident. I had, when I was in college, taken a class with someone who worked on the history of French empire and knowledge production in the 19th century and into the early 20th century. So George Trumbull, um, who has some fantastic work um, on those topics, and took a course with him and then um, was studying French at the time and wanted to use French in research. Uh, And I was about to, and I took that course um, I was about to embark on a year-long uh, study abroad in France. And so I realized that I could take more classes in Maghrebi history. And then I also learned that I was going to be able then to, if I decided to work on this region, be able to learn Arabic, uh, which I really enjoyed. And then learning Darja, learning Algerian, um, the um, the um, Darja, which was really exciting to do as well. So that's kind of how I got into um, my interest in Algerian history. And then also there's, Um, The Algerian revolution I found really fascinating. Um, And I think in part that was due to there's kind of history of decolonization and participation in the War of Independence in Ireland in my family. And so I think I saw some sort of um, a couple of parallels, although I do recognize that that um, the racialized system of settler colonialism in Algeria was very different from what existed in Ireland. Um, but I was in uh, graduate school studying African and Middle Eastern history and was reading a lot about post-independence Algerian history, reading about um, works by Malika Rahal that kind of address some of the difficulties in finding sources um, for this period source for periods that were contentious or politically contentious, um, and how to kind of move beyond perhaps sort of um, written and and archives that are official archives. Um, And as I was doing this reading, I started to find in different secondary sources references to Algerian jokes, um, works like um, Martin Evans and John Phillips' work on the 1990s, um, I also came across Aïssa Khaladi's really brilliant article. He's an Algerian journalist um, on the history of humor in Algeria, but it was very, very short, uh, political humor, and then just kept singing to different sources and then was looking at these jokes and these, um, and realized that Algeria had a very rich uh, history of cartooning, has one of the most robust uh, cartooning industries in the Middle East and North Africa, and actually hosts every year, it just happened, uh, Le Festival International de Le Bon Dessinée Algerienne, so the um, International Festival of... Um, the I think it's the yeah it's fibda and I'm trying to remember if it's the bon de, I don't think it's bande dessinée Algerienne, but or like Algerian uh, bande dessinée or kind of comic um, comics I think it might be actually in Algiers. So I'm sorry to be slipping on that but um you know it has a really rich cartooning um, kind of culture and just realized that there was kind of a lot to these stories and to these jokes and these kind of humorous products that I was coming across and in many, many ways I really like Louise White's work um, she published a book on uh, vampire stories in East Africa and kind of realizing that there was sort of these narratives are really multi-layered um, and of course we can't take sort of stories from or a joke for instance that was really popular we can't kind of think of that as being indicative of sort of a collective Kind of conscious or collective attitude, um, but it does give us kind of at least a little bit of a um, an insight into how some communities, some individuals might have been viewing really important events. And so I found it to be a really interesting and very prevalent um, source that was available for studying this part of Algerian history. And then, as I was delving more and more into this topic, um, I was getting a lot of enthusiasm from different sides um, for folks that were. Um, that I recognized that Algerians had long sort of used humor as a form of, as a sort of central site for constructing identity and seeing humor as something that was really criti- kind of critical to Algerianness and Algerian culture. Um, and I started to kind of realize I saw other projects which are really exciting, like um, there's Sandra Rousseau, who's writing uh, who's writing a book about um about comic memory uh, and how humor is a really important site for thinking through the shifts in relationships between France and Algeria um, from the time of the revolution to the present. Um, There also was um, Uh, Bashir Dahak, who is an Algerian um, scholar who lives in France, was uh, collecting jokes from uh, the early period of independence to the present and was putting out a really exciting book and actually asked me to do the postscript for it. So it was really exciting, or post So it was really exciting to get to do that. Um, and then Zineb Sidero was working on dark humor in the 1990s. So there was also kind of a lot of scholarly activity and this was something that had been written about humor and um, gen- not so much in general, but more sort of different forms of comedy. It was really prevalent in Algerian scholarship. And so it was something just that was really exciting. And as I was going through and doing the work, um, was learning more and more that this was a very important topic, and then finally the Harak happened in 2019. Uh, this was the movement against a an additional term for President um, Abdelaziz Bouteflika, who at that point had been um, ailing for a few years and kind of absent from the public sphere. Um, for quite some time, and humor became this massive arm of resistance, but also a way of kind of expressing Algerianess, um, and also at the same time showing the peaceful nature of the protest and sort of the creativity of Algerians um, in the face of a regime that they wanted to, to change. So it was kind of, once again, sort of kind of as I was building off the work, it, it became more and more impaired that this was a very important story.
1: Yes. And um, can you explain us coming to the book itself, the title, what does humor have to do with power and then exchange power with humor?
0: Excellent. Yeah. So I, um, I was really, it was hard to kind of think of a title. Um, I recognize that a lot of academic works and books often have sort of a a main title and a subtitle. And um, that's kind of a really important thing. But I wanted to be really clear that this is a history of um, national political humor in Algeria and also thinking through this question of how humor relates to power and power to humor. Um, and so in doing that, there were a couple kind of possible other titles that was that we kind of thought about, myself and um, the editors, my great editors at Indian University Press. Um, one was the Laughing Revolution, with the idea of sort of the revolution representing Algeria sort of, and that was kind of the idea of the revolution had once sort of um, been this very popular movement. And then the revolution, something that a lot of folks across different ideological, um, across the ideological spectrum in Algeria kind of looked to as a moment of sort of popular push for um, for independence and sort of a center, central part of Algerian identity um, or identities. Um, and so we kind of thought about that. And it was actually something that came from a quote from um, Bashir Bumeza, who is a official in the FLN in the 1960s. He was talking about sort of immediately after this very serious conflict, uh, you know, eight year long war decolonization um discussing the the need for sort of the the revolution to sort of be able to laugh and smile and laugh at itself um but then I wanted to make sure too that we weren't kind of confusing if we're using kind of a synonym for humor um because I really wanted to think of humor in a more sort of um capacious way um so that was one thing that I noticed in sort of earlier Algerian scholarship on wasn't necessarily humor, but it would be on something like theater and comedy and theater or jokes over here or cartoons over here. I wanted to kind of pull all these together and see what some of the common threads were in intertextuality across different genres of humor Um, and to kind of see how that humor changed over time. And this was humor, once again, that was commenting on national politics. Um, And so in kind of keeping it kind of shorter humor and power, I wanted to kind of make sure that we weren't um, bringing in you know, laughing as an effective humor and, and kind of making that seem like we're sort of limiting the definition of humor. Um, and so that was something that was important to do. And then in terms of the relationship between humor and power, um, the book is really focused on how humor can be used to think about arrangements of power, uh, can be used to challenge power. That's something that comes out, especially in the last chapter of the book, which is looking at cartoonists, who are basically putting public officials on trial through um, the daily cartoons that they're producing that are questioning, particularly the end of the 1990s conflict and how the reconciliation was carried out. Um, which, which they felt that seemed like from, and also from some of the things that they said publicly, they felt was, you know, sort of a, justice was not really served for the victims of that conflict um, through the reconciliation process. Um, and so, able to use humor as a way to criticize policy um, and also respond to, once again, these really important events that were taking place. But also, I wanted to focus as well um, in a lot of um, literature on humor in humor studies. Um, but also particularly after the Arab Spring. So there was a bunch of literature that came out um, post-Arab Spring about the role of humor during, and I don't really like the term Arab Spring, but I'll just, you know, because there were other ethnicities that participated. Um, and then once again, there's really, a lot of folks have pointed out Arab Spring kind of implies that there might've been an Arab winter, which is very problematic. Um, but there was a lot of work coming out that kind of, Insinuated, sort of, the humor was kind of that way—that it was something that was coming out, that was sort of new and widespread because it was, perhaps, spreading more quickly due to things like um, Twitter and social media, um, and so there was kind of a frustration of sort of just seeing it kind of as a tool of resistance, without recognizing that. Well, first and foremost, with the within the context of the Arab Spring, that there had been long-standing traditions of humor in places like, you know, in in all the places that experienced um, the Arab Spring revolts, Um, but that this humor really had, during this period, um, was building off of these earlier um, humorous traditions. Um, and really humor had been sort of a part of like a, what Charles Tully calls like the repertoires of contention. They were tools that folks could use that were pre-standing and pre-existing. Um, and also that humor has a sort of multifunctionality, which we talk about in humor studies, but I saw sort of most of the humor that was written about that period, um, the period of the Arab Spring as being kind of just solely a tool of resistance. And so I'm also thinking here as well, Um, humor being a tool to sort of shape power or to question power uh, or to reinforce power, but conversely, power being able, folks that are in power being able to use humor as a tool as well. And so I do focus in the book about how different states and governments and parties um, that held power in different capacities recognized humor as a really powerful um, cultural tool for being able to try to convince populations of the righteousness of their ideology um, or being able to... Um, build up a certain vision of nationalism that might, a national identity that might include some but exclude others. Um, so it was really important to me that kind of that title be kind of more sort of all-encompassing. Um, but once again, sort of the focus here is this um, connection between humor and power uh, throughout this this period from the interwar period to the present.
1: Great, thank you. And um, how would you define humor in the context of your work? and in what way does it play a role in Algerian politics?
0: So for the definition of humor, um, I tried very much to make sure that the um, that the genres that were being categorized by individuals I was speaking to as oral history narrators, or that I was seeing in sources, um, that I kind of let those sources really drive kind of what I was thinking of when I was thinking of humor. Um, so for instance, Aissa Khalari's um, this Algerian journalist who'd written about humor, and he was very much kind of saying that this sort of political humor is kind of really coming to the fore, beginning in the nineteen twenties, thirties, and forties, and was and was acknowledging that we can think about humor in theater, um, in plays um, on the stage, and sort of comedic kind of um, sketches. Uh, we can think about television sketches, satirical songs, and all of these different sort of genres. Um, And so I really tried to let sort of that definition to kind of talk to oral history narrators and say, most of whom were either artists who were producing humor. um, So I spoke to a lot of cartoonists, for instance, um, or journalists or or scholars in Algeria who had worked on humor and just would say kind kind of openly like what, you know, tell me a little bit about, you know, humor in your childhood that was commenting on politics that you heard and through different parts of their lives. And so I really kind of let that sort of drive um, kind of the definition that I use throughout the book. Although I do kind of just to kind of make it clear to folks, um, also times kind of fall back on Rachel um, Klutz, bombs kind of encompassing sort of idea of, com- of humorous comic efforts to stimulate joy or amusement in others um, were the product of those effects. And that's a direct quote from from her. So that was kind of something else that came there, although a lot of some of the book does focus on humor that's engaging with trauma that sometimes might not be quite so much amusement, but it could be amusement as a form of distraction, um, or healing from that trauma
1: and uh, you look at different eras of Algerian history. How does humor change within each era and what are their characteristics?
0: Yeah, and so this gets back, I realize the second part of your other question was um, the role that humor plays in Algerian politics. Um, so it's important to acknowledge, and there's been some really good work, um, mm-hmm. Patrick Crowley put out a really great edited volume that talks about different forms of political culture in Algeria, um, That. Historically, and this has been, there have been different periods and sort of um, different periods where this has been more or less the case. Um, So this is not sort of a static thing, but historically Algerian population, broader communities um, have not been able to really have access to center of, of powers. We have a colonial regime uh, that is a very stark settler colonial system and hierarchy um, in which naturalized Europeans um, who are identified as full French citizens are really placed at the top of the hierarchy. We have the French states, um, and then we have Jews who are forcefully made, who are in the northern part of Algeria that were forcefully made um, full French citizens, but who experience, I anti-Semitism at the hand of settlers. And then we have sort of the Algerian Muslim majority population and that Muslim majority population lived under, you know, severe oppression. Um, from the 1830s moving onward, um, lack of freedom of speech, uh, subjected to censorship. Um, and so the question that I had here, and then we move into the post-independence period, we have a one-party system for several decades, um, followed by a really brief democratic opening uh, that still doesn't represent sort of a perfect period of a lack of censorship or free speech. And then we get into a civil conflict in the 1990s. And of course, I'm kind of painting with a broad brush here, but throughout all of these periods, um, politics and sort of formal politics and government and political parties are not something that m- most Algerians are engaging in. Instead, a lot of the political activity that takes place, um, and this is something that kind of really intersects with Asif Bayat's work, sort of the politics of the everyday is really where we see um, civilians And citizens um, who are marginalized from power, and that's kind of the majority um, able to engage with politics. So I think humor was a very important site for that to take place, for folks to think through really central political questions of identity: Um, what was, what is Algerianess, what is the nation, Uh, which is a really pertinent question, particularly leading up to independence and into independence. Who should have power? Who shouldn't have power? What do we think of our leaders? Um, So there's. Um, I'll get to sort of how I periodicize um, humor and uh, the sort of national political humor um, in a second, but there is this um, kind of pattern in the post-independence era, of which is very common across countries of um, kind of ridiculing and mocking at times political leaders. But in Algeria, the 1980s, in particular, under um, the third Algerian president, Shali ben this was the president that just garnered a lot of, of jokes. There were so many jokes about him. There, were, there was actually kind of a meta joke that was about all of the jokes um, that existed. And I might actually get into that just because it's an interesting uh, joke. But there was a joke that He had actually asked his secret services to collect all the jokes that they heard, to bring them and put them in bags. Um, And then he was going to go into the Bay of Algiers and was going to dump them all into the sea. And so he's able to do that. He gets all the jokes into bags, dumps them into the sea. A few seconds later, all the fish and all the sort of marine life rise up to the surface, dead from laughter which is kind of playing a little bit with the French term, de, voilà de rire. Um, so, it's, uh, um, so there's a lot of jokes about him. Um, and so once again, sort of this is a really central political activity that is also very accessible too in terms of if we think about cultural production, um, if we're thinking about things like jokes, it's something that individuals can do um, regardless of literacy. Um, they're able to uh, be able to make, there's a, an inherent ambiguity to humor which can make it something that can kind of pass um, without sometimes um, the perceptibility or like kind of legibility of what's actually being said to a power or to an authority. So it can be a very effective hidden transcript for hiding uh, messages that are really important as well. Um, and so in terms of the different periods and eras, um, the book really identifies um, this period of the 1920s, 30s, 40s, and even up until the, the 60s, 70s and 80s is a time where humor was a really important and a lot of the humor commenting on national politics, but under the in the colonial period and then uh, post independence period was really about sort of question of Algerian, Algerianness um, and how to define the nation. Um, and some of that was actually through a lot of self-deprecating humor, which is kind of something that's quite common um, in Algerian humor. And then I noticed that the humor starts to shift, particularly with the revolution of October 1988. That's um, often seen as it was a very serious event and bloody event and a big sort of turning point for the population and its relationship to the state. Um, and particularly to the army as the army had fired on protesters um, during those events. Um and so that, after this period with the democratic opening, we start to see humor as a way for folks to kind of think through this change in period. Um, we start to see sort of humor be a little bit more sort of divisive in terms of ideology. Um, and then into the 1990s conflict, we see that kind of continue as well. So there's sort of this point of rupture uh, that begins in 1988 that kind of gets us through into the early 2000s.
1: Um, and I'm curious in what way ways were jokes published? What platforms did artists use in order to express their humor in particular?
0: Yeah, so she should mention that I, I, as much as I wanted to be really um, capacious, I do look at different genres in the earlier period. Um, in the first chapter of the book, when I'm looking at sort of 1920s, 30s, and 40s, and and um, in the next few decades after that as well, um, but I did focus mostly in the book on jokes and cartoons, um, in part because those are the forms of humor that really kind of persist into the 1990s and allowed me to sort of see this kind of map this change um, over time because we have things like stand-up comedy that kind of comes to a halt in the 1990s um, as Algeria is in the civil conflict and um, it becomes kind of dangerous to make jokes about about national politics. Um, I don't have any evidence that anyone was sort of killed over a joke, but it was a period where there was really heightened tension um, as we did have different groups that were claiming um, that they were revolting um, to to avenge the the feast of the the Islamic Salvation Front, which was the main Islamist movement party that was poised to take power in December, January, legislative elections um, on a national level. They had already taken power in some uh, municipal elections earlier on um, and or municipal elections earlier on um, in certain parts of the country and that that sort of uh, interruption of the of those elections, legislative elections kind of kickstart um, a series of events which cause there to be um, armed groups that are in rebellion against the state. And this is the 1990s conflict in Algeria that's often called the Black Decade. Um, but there are sort of multiple names for it. The Waqt al-Irhab, so the time of terrorism, as well as another um, common name. Uh, in French, "Dessin Noir uh, is also one as well. Um, and so the I was getting to sort of... Um, in terms of sort of the, the ways of getting at some of these sources. Um, so humor was really expressed in a lot of different ways in the 1920s, 30s, lots of satirical songs. Theater was really big during this period and was a big area um, in which we see different artists that are thinking about what the Algerian nation can look like. Should the Algerian nation be a nation in which we're sort of still part of France and we are kind of openly embracing um you know, interracial marriage, um, interreligious marriage, um songs were really important as well, satirical songs. Um, Television sketches were really important as we're getting into kind of the 50s and 60s. Um, But uh, as we're moving forward, cartooning becomes really important. It started, you know, a little bit earlier. um, But there is cartooning during the uh, revolution, uh, that is sort of very much supporting the National Liberation Front, which was the main uh, movement for um, liberation in Algeria during the revolution. And then in the late 1960s and moving forward, there starts to be this sort of robust cartooning industry that emerges. Um, And so there's all sorts of material there, sort of in newspapers and media and print culture. Um, And then jokes are kind of a constant throughout because they are really um, prevalent, sometimes just plays on words, but sometimes these longer narratives that sort of have a traditional punchline um, at the end of them. And for jokes, um, I got a lot of them through conversations with oral history narrators, because jokes are very oral. Um, So there wasn't, A ton of writing them down or publishing of sort of collections of jokes, although that's kind of changing a little bit. There's uh, Luna Stehmani published a he's a a cartoonist who actually drew um, a number of the different jokes that were about the 1990s and put them out in a collection called Blag or jokes made in Algeria. And we do a new sort of collection um, that was published a few years ago that I mentioned earlier that covers political humor from the time of independence to the present. Um, But for the most part, they are jokes that just kind of were very common transcripts. So I could kind of trace how common a joke was, whether I could find it in multiple different sources with multiple narrators. Um, There is some of the jokes actually are part of... um, what Mehdi Samati calls uh, sort of a global intertextuality of humor. Um, so there are some there's some borrowings and some from some jokes that were common. It's hard to know whether they originate in Algeria or sort of borrowing from other parts of um, the Middle East, North Africa, for instance, um, and also from um uh, Soviet humor kind of made its way as well. So sort of this there's sort of this international sort of socialist humor. Um, but there's evidence too that Algerian um uh, communities also produced jokes and other things that were transmitted elsewhere as well. And that became sort of adapted to local, um, cultures, which is, which is also really interesting. Um, but yeah, but I think another kind of someone asked once asked me whether there were kind of cassette recordings of jokes, once we get up to like the eighties and the nineties, and I didn't find that that was really the case. Although there was, um, there were a couple of really funny satirical, um, radio shows, particularly Saint-Petit, which was a big um, on the Chantoir, the Channel 3 um, in the late 80s and early 90s. that was really popular and people would record that. And then people did, you know, I was able to talk to some narrators and these were people that were interested in the history of comedy and humor in Algeria, but they had collected um, earlier editions of different sort of comics that were for children, uh, but that had sort of humor contained in them, Al-Manshar, which is a collective, The Saw, which is a collective um, product from a number of different cartoonists in the early 1990s that was very popular. There were people that would it sold, I think, better than some serious journals and newspapers um, from the numbers that I saw. Um, so it was incredibly popular, but people kept those and they keep them in their home because they understood that they were really important. Um, but for the most part, the jokes were kind of orally, um, orally transmitted.
1: And um... I think humor is very specific to each language. And what difficulties did you have while translating them for your own research to um, translate them into English?
0: Yeah, so something that was really important with the book, and I'm glad that the book does, is that I do have the original transliterations and the original texts of the jokes um, and any sort of Comedic material. So I think plays as well, um, and songs that were published. So some of the songs from plays that were comedies in the 1920s, and particularly 19. 19- 30s, more in the 1930s, Um, some of those, the lyrics from those songs were were written down and they're available in uh, French colonial archives in particular was where I was able to find some. And so the actual text of the joke in the original language is something that I do keep and make sure that it's present throughout the book. So you have the sort of English translation and then the original text, which I thought was really important to keep in so that folks could see the richness. Um, And so that individuals who do speak, and understand arabic algerian arabic um there's a little bit of Tamazight, but but very little a in particular um, so tamizir, um and french as well um so the folks would be able to kind of access that and sort of see the original um but it is very it's hard to translate humor both in terms of the context from which it's emerging so it's really important one of the goals of the book too is to say we have to really be deeply we have to contextualize humor um which is i think a reason why I liked kind of approaching this from sort of a historical methodology um, to make sure to kind of deeply contextualize humor, but to kind of explain a joke. um, It sometimes takes a lot of effort because there's these intricacies of the language, of play on words. Um, I recently, this is in the book, but I was recently giving a a talk about science fiction and comedy and science fiction post-independence and post-independence Algeria. And there's this um, joke that Faleg has. So he's a really famous uh, stand-up Algerian um, comic. And it's in a 1990 sketch where he's giving this joke where he jokes that um, Algerians are going to have their first rocket that's going to be called Ariane Kraté. Ariane, so naked in Arabic. Ariane Kraté in French means you have nothing to kind of scratch. Um, but also Ariane was the sort of the name of French um, or European rockets that France was a part of. So there's kind of this multi-layeredness to that, to that joke and that pun and works with multiple la- languages as well and kind of multiple references. Um, and so it's it's interesting to have to kind of unpack that and explain it. And it's hard to do that because I think you don't want to lose the interest of the reader in that sort of ex- explanation, uh, but it is really important. Um, in terms of kind of content, I didn't notice, um, I think that the biggest example of sort of difference between someone who's producing in, in different languages. Um, Cause I didn't notice kind of differences in sort of themes in different languages ex- with the exception of, um, so cross languages, except for some cartoons from the nineties. Um, we do have Ayyub who's the biggest cartoonist um, who works for Al-Khabar. Um, in Algeria, which is the largest um, Arabic language newspaper daily. And he did write that he had to kind of change because his audience might have been more conservative and might have um, been more offended if he had sort of linked um, signs, like, for instance, beards, um, that some of his two Islamic extremists, or those kind of claiming, under undertaking extremist actions, radical actions in the name of Islam, or sort of claiming that they're doing in the name of Islam, if he had kind of shown sort of bearded, quote unquote, like bearded terrorists in his cartoons that that might have offended some of his readers in ways that some of the other, um, the French language cartoonists were able to kind of produce those images. Um, so there is kind of a difference in sort of the content of comedy um, across um, those languages in that particular context. Um, but actually, Faleg is someone who, his, his comedy that he produces in Algeria, it's actually more about, I think, audience. He would produce it in Tamazir, in, in Algerian Arabic, mostly in Algerian Arabic, and then French, and then a little bit of English at times, when he did stand-up comedy routines in the early 90s in Algeria. And then he leaves and goes to France, and then now does sort of more, sort of what Sandra Rousseau works on in terms of comic memory between France and Algeria. He's oftentimes commenting on sort of explaining Algeria and Algerian cultures, to French audiences, and so the the content and sort of the delivery and the language is much different between those kind of products as well. But very much language is a huge part of this, and trying to unpack it is is quite complicated. So I tried to make sure to include the original language, and then um, in the in the text in the book, and then also try to explain, but um, kind of keeping the narrative going at the same time.
1: Uh, and what other difficulties did you come across while working on your research? Did you come uh, any uh, difficulties or how, uh, yes?
0: <laughs> yeah, so it's, um. I think probably just um, sort of trying to find material from earlier periods was a little bit complicated. I think that jokes from the 20s and 30s, and that was kind of really complicated because that was before the time of many of my narrators. Um, and so kind of really only being able to get like a couple of jokes from that period um, was a bit of a challenge because you like to have sort of a broad sort of swath or to find a, a joke that may be paired in multiple sources, which is what I'm able to do for the sixties and seventies moving forward. Um, and so that was a little bit difficult. Um, I think sometimes the, the sacredness of sort of the material in terms of, um, for instance, some of the cartoons that I present that were produced by National Liberation Front artists, so this, the major nationalist party and movement during the Algerian revolution, um, some of those cartoons were taken off um, the bodies of individuals that had been killed by French soldiers. Um, and so understanding that this material you know, came to me through sort of French mili- military archives, but through this very um, devastating way and means. Um, and. I think, just uh, I think, in particularly kind of when you're doing oral history narratives as well, and collecting those and, and working with um, narrators, or um, and we use that kind of particularly in oral history that's kind of in the field. We use like the term narrator and we try to think about that as. What's produced in that exchange is a narrative because it's sort of stressing that there's sort of shared authority and there's the fact that the researcher is also shaping the narrative um, that results. I just kind of explain that in case I've had some folks in the past be like, "Do you mean like interlocutor? Do you mean interviewee?" and and kind of explain why I'm using the term narrator. Um, but in conducting those in, those um, exchanges, um, there's always kind of a lot of challenge when you're asking. Folks to to um, talk about periods that might have been difficult, such as the 1990s, um, for the cartoonists that I was speaking to about that period, um, they had lost colleagues, uh, they themselves had been under threat. Um, for instance, Ali Dilam had to was one of the major cartoonists that kind of continues to to draw throughout the period, and was sort of known as like the voice of his nation and was very very popular um, at the time, but had to go into hiding and sort of lost his youth, um, and then eventually went to France for a little bit, but he lost. Um, you know, very good friends and and his mentor, Said Mohbal and I talk about that a little bit in the in the text as well. And so I think it was is challenging sometimes emotionally to kind of to to speak with folks about that. And then also to make to you feel the sort of sense of what you should feel um, as trying to explain these narratives and, and go through and analyze them to make sure that you're representing them correctly and accurately. So I think that's just a, a challenge to make sure you do that, to make sure that you Um, are really good at contextualizing the humor. You're not over-interpreting are understanding kind of the nuance of something that was perhaps uh, had sort of an ephemeral kind of impact or was talking about events that were sort of happening and unfolding in real time. Um, And to make sense of that at times was a bit hard because especially some of the cartoons would be really about specific events that had just happened the day before. And I might have not been able to from my position years later, be able to kind of understand exactly what had happened the day before and exactly all of the references in a particular cartoon. And even if I presented them to someone who had lived during that period, they might kind of forget. I'd forget kind of what was going on on that day that they're commenting on here. Um, So that was a little bit of a challenge as well. Um, But I will say that it it was actually quite easy to find a lot of material. Um, when I talked to oral history narrators, I would also say, do you have any material? And everyone's like, you're going to have so much material to work on with this topic, because um, there was just a lot. It is, once again, like a very important um, part of Algerian political culture, but also sort of an idea of sort of a good sense of humor, um, ability to laugh at oneself. Once again, as mentioned kind of earlier about the laughing revolution. Um it is something that's seen as very central to Algerianness in a way that actually I think Kevin Jones published a recent book about poetry and the centrality of poetry to Iraqi sort of political culture. And I think there's kind of a similarity there, but with humor in Algeria.
1: And um, looking at the time period that you were working on, which events were the most depicted in jokes?
0: Yeah, that's a really good answer yeah, to
1: answer this question.
0: Yeah, so it's um, it one of the, the purposes of the book is also to see, and the overall kind of central argument is that it is important for us to pull back and look at humor across different genres, um, to compare what's being said, and then also to trace shifts in humor and time. Those shifts themselves can actually be a, a unit of historical analysis um, to see what is taboo at which moments. Um, and, and that's something what can be made fun of, what can't be made fun of. Um, in general, religion's not very made fun of in a lot of different There's There's some uh, humor that talks about religion and in which religion plays a really central role, but it's not the religion itself that's being made fun of, if that makes sense. It's not that, that, that that's the butt of the joke. Um, and so, and I think you were saying kind of what events were really talked about. Um, oftentimes the uh, different, in both cartoons and in jokes, um, leaders were very much kind of targets for um, for 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 jokes and for humor as the butts of jokes. Um, personal relationships of those individuals were not, so it was more sort of their public persona. And I think there was, especially among cartoonists, something that I saw through some sources and through oral history, um, Uh, Narratives was something that you know we would not touch. You know, if there was some rumor of someone having something with their wife, we wouldn't talk about that in the humor. Um, And so we do see a lot of uh, there's a lot of anti-colonial humor from the earlier periods. Um, We do see in the 1960s, 70s a lot of humor about sort of what's going on with socialism during that period, and then once again, sort of leaders being um, uh, sort of made fun of. Um, and then really Shadli jokes are the huge kind of, it's a huge genre of joke that comes out that's making fun of um, the third Algerian president who was seen as not being as good as his predecessor, Huari Boumediene. He was kind of seen as someone who was not as, um, zalim. he wasn't sort of as great of a leader as um, Boumediene had been. Uh, He wasn't as he was known to have not been quite as well, like educated or eloquent in Arabic in particular um, as his predecessor. And so there were a lot of jokes about him that made fun of him for um, not being as intelligent or for not having a lot of education. Um, So really, the topics kind of vary, but those are sort of the main sort of themes is sort of the political leaders. What is Algerian, the Algerian people and and or Algerian communities? What are they being imagined as? Um, or invented as, and then also sort of what is Algerianness? And how do we kind of, and particularly in the 1990s, there's a through a lot of the humor that talked about the Black decade, um, this sort of ex- exploration of, you know, what does Algerianness mean in this time of this civil strife and this time in which sort of communal bo- bonds that we that have been very um, much stronger in early periods are now breaking down. And how do we deal with sort of the ambiguity of violence? Um, and how do we kind of work our way through this trauma? Something that really came up in the 1990s.
1: Thank you so much, Liz. And are you still working on humor? Or what are you currently working on? Or is your next project?
0: Yeah, so I have a couple of... Um, so the next book projects are going to be a little different. But the um, I'm, I'm hopefully going to get out a, a few more pieces about humor um, in article form. So I'm working on... Um, gender represented through theater in the interwar period. So I'm working on an article related to that, and that's gonna have some comedy and humor um, in those texts and in, that are kind of being brought out in that piece. Um, I'm working, I'd like to do an article on the early history of Algerian cartooning, because I do kind of skip through it pretty quickly in the books, so I do wanna go back to that and really give it its due diligence, particularly because of how important cartooning culture is um, in Algeria, and to not only in Algeria, but also, Algeria and the region as well in Middle East and Africa. Um, and then also I am working on a piece I mentioned earlier, Falag talking about a spaceship. Um, I'm working on a piece on Algerian science fiction and shifts in sort of the content of science fiction from the 60s and 70s through um, the 1990s. And how it goes from being kind of a very serious way for the state and then also just artists to think about and different Algerian futures that are quite positive to more sort of pessimistic. And there's a lot of parody in the eighties and the nineties. So I'm going to kind of write about that. Um, but the next book project that I'm working on is actually, I've one of two projects, but I'll just explain one that I'm really excited about, which is going to look at, I am I, very interested in my work on the intersection of culture and politics and gender and how sort of gender notions of identity Um, community, power, um, how those are often expressed through culture, um, but that these sort of gendered ideas can sometimes um, be used to explain who should have power, who shouldn't have power in different parts of um, Maghrebi history, but particularly in Algeria. Um, And so the next book that I'm really excited about is going to be called Icons of Liberty, and it's going to look at Algerian women uh, as figures of independence and liberty in 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 decolonization and during the period of decolonization and global decolonization. Um, And so building off of sort of that legacy of the Mujahideh that folks like Natalia Vance um, have written about um, and Jamila Amaran and a few others, um, but actually now sort of thinking about not just how these women were viewed who were female fighters for independence, how they were viewed during the revolution and kind of immediately after um, in Algeria or in Europe, which is kind of or in Western media, which has sort of been the focus so far, but actually how they were viewed in different parts of the decolonizing world. So having what was the coverage of Jamila Bouhared, for instance, in Cuba, in Palestine, there's there's actually there's talk of like Jamila Bouhared and other Algerian female fighters from the revolution in Palestinian textbooks. And so this is something that's really kind of interesting to me, but it's gonna focus on four icons of liberty, Tamila Bohared, um, women who were part of the state, which are some, that's a group that's oftentimes kind of maligned, but they actually did some different things and they did represent Algerian women on the international stage. And that's the National Union of Algerian Women Post-Independence. And then the the third person is going to be Orda Jazairia, who is a very famous Algerian singer who sang in favor of Algerian independence, then comes back in the 80s and 90s. Um, and then finally, I'm going to look at Hasiba Bumurka, who is a runner who uh, continues to run during the period of uh, increasing tensions at the start of the civil conflict in Algeria. So these women, how they're viewed as being icons of liberty in different ways and in different fields of so sports, um, singing and art and music in um, politics um, and diplomacy uh, throughout these different periods to kind of see um, what it means to sort of be an icon uh, during this period of decolonization in the Cold War and then into the 1990s um, and also to sort of, sort of trace these kind of global South-South connections and feminist connections in particular, but also um, solidarity uh, in the decolonization struggle and how that sometimes is mediated through visions of women and gender.
1: Thank you so much for the conversation, Liz, and thank you so much for being on the podcast today. Awesome. Thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed the conversation.